Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Read Season 2, World in Peril by Ken White. This is a PDF from archive.org, the Internet Archive. Thanks again for tuning in to continue on with this Season 2 series. Um, we'll begin with Chapter 4 and go through Chapter 4, 5, and 6 today in this episode. If you missed the rundown of the table of contents, it's in the first episode of the season, and it's pretty extensive. Um, I'll just mention again also, and probably in each installment, that this particular PDF also has uh, a lot of photos and images. And while I can attempt to describe what is being shown, it is probably in your best interest to go get a copy of the PDF yourself, or if you can find an actual physical copy of the book to look at the photos, um, I would highly suggest it. Thanks a lot, everybody, for tuning in today. I really appreciate all of you guys listening. And uh, with that, let's get going. Chapter 4. Deployment. Washington Post, June 9th, 1946. The Air Force disclosed earlier that a squadron of converted B-29 long-range bombers has been assigned to Alaska to make frequent weather flights over the Arctic. Termed by a ranking military men the world's most strategic stretch of geography in an age of atom bombs and 10,000-mile planes. Speculation and rumors were buzzing at Grand Island. Captain Carl Palmer felt that although there was much confusion about the 46th mission, they did learn that they were going to Alaska and that they were the chosen few, according to Brigadier General Peck from 15th Air Force Headquarters at Colorado Springs. The general visited Grand Island several times and told the personnel at every opportunity how fortunate they were to have been chosen for this outstanding assignment. Colonel Feldman and Colonel Killer Kane of Congressional Medal of Honor fame were also there among other high-ranking officials, adding both mystique and confusion to the situation. On Special Order 21, backdated to June 3rd, 1946, people were finally assigned specific tasks in the unit. Captain Palmer had previously been in charge of supply, transportation, and food service. He had managed to maneuver his friend, Lieutenant Cecil Shover, out of the 449th Bomb Group and had him assigned to the 46th so his mess problems were pretty well taken care of. Lieutenant Brumbach had been acting as adjutant in the past, but Captain Palmer discovered that according to the special order, that job would be his. Captain Carl Gunlock was then made the mess, transportation, and supply officer. Captain Frank Farrell was appointed operations officer, Captain John Legrand was appointed squadron navigator, and Captain Emery Furterber was the squadron communications officer. Also on that special order, Major Lewis Hallberg was appointed deputy squadron commander, and Major Robert L. Ramsey was relieved of command of the 46th. That special order was signed by Major Maynard E. White, commanding. The majority of the 46th recon staff were selected from the personnel of Grand Island. This was done by screening all the personnel records from which the best qualified personnel were selected to be interviewed, at which time the final selections were made and the personnel chosen were assigned to the 46th. At the completion of the screening of all personnel at Grand Island, teams from the 46th went to the other SAC bases and repeated the screening process. Most of the remaining personnel and crews came from Salina, Kansas. With the resolution of the personnel problem in progress, it was time to address the equipment problem. 
It was determined that six each of the B-29 aircraft would be flown to Oklahoma City Air Material Area, Okama, at Tinkerfield, Oklahoma City for winterization and modification to increase the suitability of the aircraft for the polar mission. By researching all information available throughout the Air Force relative to cold weather operations and the requirements of the Project Nanook mission, it was determined that the B-29 must undergo extensive modifications. These aircraft at Okama were to be completed prior to the departure of the 46th Recon to Ladd Field. Additional F-13 aircraft extensively modified B-29s equipped for photography but lacking many of these modifications were picked up at San Antonio. These aircraft underwent further changes during the coming winter months at the Alaskan Air Command Depot at Anchorage, Alaska and at Okama, creating a serious shortage of available aircrafts for months to come. At the time the 46th Recon Squadron deployed, there was no search and rescue capability available to support Project Nanook. Since the recent reorganization of the Air Force, this mission was assigned to the Air Transport Command, which had very limited capability in this area and none in the Alaskan theater. To provide a semblance of capability, two PBY amphibious aircraft and one B-17 aircraft with a boat mounted in the bottom were assigned. It was highly debatable how much assurance this provided the crews, who would soon be flying over the most inhospitable terrain in the world. But this was the ultimate in the equipment available at that point in time and demonstrated the state of the art, or lack thereof, in rescue equipment, further indicating the requirement for development of survival hardware to support global operations. It was on or about the 15th of June that Captain Palmer learned that Project Nanook would be a 180-day temporary duty assignment. It was also about that time that personnel were selected to meet the support skills and requirements for the advanced echelon. An initial team of 60 personnel, 4 officers, and 56 enlisted men was identified and assigned to the project as the advanced support team to reconnoiter Ladd Field for the 46th Squadron. Captain Palmer was surprised to be chosen to command the advanced echelon of Project Nanook. First Lieutenant Rufus Ross, First Lieutenant John Stevens, and Warrant Officer Walker were his officers. The chosen officers, non-commissioned officers, and men were all a very qualified group. The non-commissioned officers had lots of experience. Many had served in World War II and several had been officers. On 18 June, the team was prepared to leave, records were collected, orders were cut, and immunizations were completed. He remembers the immunization program as being very thorough. He relates, quote, Most of us who had been in this service knew about updated shots. I got six shots and a vaccination, as did most of the men. We reported to the field at 6.30 a.m. on the 19th of June, 1946, and aboard one of the C-54s assigned to the 46th, headed for Great Falls, Montana, arriving at 1900 hours. Most of us were sick from the shots and the salami sandwiches on our flight lunch. In fact, we had to leave Sergeant Roy Roller in the hospital at Great Falls, although he joined us later at Fairbanks. On 21 June 1946 at 0600 MST, our team departed Great Falls, Montana and headed for Ladd Field, Fairbanks, Alaska via Edmonton, Alberta, and Whitehorse, Yukon Territory. We arrived at Ladd Field about mid-afternoon on the 21st, the longest day of the year and that one surely was. Our group was met by Colonel Louise M. Merrick, Commander Ladd Army Air Force Base, his staff, his troops, and the military band. 
We were really made to feel welcome and wanted. Our personnel were provided temporary quarters, mess arrangements, etc. Colonel Merrick, Major Hansen, his executive officer, Colonel George P. Anderson, material officer, and I went on a base tour. I was shown three proposed areas for the 45th Squadron, the 300 area, the 500 area, and the 900 area. After the tour, I was assigned a jeep so I could take a look around on my own to decide which area was best suited for our needs. I was also invited by Colonel Merrick to be his guest at the annual Midnight Sun baseball game between Ladville and Fairbanks, which started at midnight. No lights, no sleep, and no way out. Having departed Great Falls at 6 a.m. or 3 a.m. Fairbanks time, and still suffering the shock from six shots and the vaccination, with a glance into my arms feeling the size of baseballs, the prospect of three or four hours at a sport that I never really enjoyed, and still don't, I knew this was damn sure going to be a long, long day. After the tour, I picked up my Jeep and my officers and we headed for the area's offer base. The 900 area was by far the best. The quarters, Quinsett huts, headquarters area, ramp aircraft parking area, mess and supply areas and buildings seemed to have a homogenous arrangement that lent itself to our organization, plus the fact that it was remote enough to give it some independence and privacy. There was a lot of work needed, but it basically had the elements required for our operation. We all agreed that the 900 area would be a good home. Colonel Merrick and his people were advised, and on 22 June 1946, we moved it. With total support, from all base elements, working with our people, we picked up our vehicles, furniture, mess equipment, and general supplies, and we were in business. There were problems for us as the 46th Recon Squadron was a high-priority unit with a special classified mission and specialized equipment. Ladfield was in a holding or caretaker position with responsibility for a broad range and variety of military outposts scattered over the Yukon sector, which is in the northern portion of Alaska. It also provided housekeeping support for cold weather test detachment activities during the winter. In addition, Ladfield was also the hub for the Alaska Railroad that was all military. The vehicles and ground support equipment were very limited in number, quite old, and in questionable condition. The 46th Recon Squadron had a T-O-N-E authorization for far more equipment than was available any place in Alaskan command. Our T-O-N-E had to be expedited if we were to meet our mission objectives and goals. Those were the facts, and as such, were transmitted back to our headquarters in Grand Island for assistance and advice. A major problem turned out to be the giant West Coast shipping strike that had the Seattle port shut down to commercial shipping. Our project was making good progress with the facilities preparation, modifications to buildings and work areas, fixing the proposed film processing and camera repair facilities in the hangar, equipping the mess halls for supplies, and generally getting things set up. Time seemed to slip right by us and we were keeping up with day-to-day living and really making a lot of progress. We were also getting a lot more of our people in and turning them into the work ethic. Our first big ego booster came around the 10th of July when food service inspectors raided our mess hall number one on Ladville. It certainly helped the morale and increased work productivity. However, it was no real problem getting people to work all hours, since daylight lasted 24 hours a day and it was boring as hell if a person didn't keep himself busy. 
We did find time for a little scouting around and seeing the city was transportation was available. The distances were great because everything was so spread out, making transportation critical. On 12 July 1946, Captain Palmer got a message calling him back to Grand Island to brief the current status of the development of biofuel and the difficulties being encountered, and to help work out some solutions to the shipping problem on the West Coast. Chapter 5 The Supply Problem When on the 16th of July 1946, the Captain Carl Palmer reported back to Grand Island to help resolve difficulties in shipping equipment from the continental United States Potomac to Latvia. He had attended a series of briefings during which it was concluded that the major problems were a direct result of the shipping strike on the West Coast and Seattle was the bottom. The conclusion was that the direct personal action was mandatory and urgent. Carl was the officer chosen to report to Seattle on a 15-day TBY on or about the 1st of August of 1946 for the purpose of serving as liaison officer to expedite movements of troops and equipment through the Seattle port of embarkation. June and Carl Palmer left Grand Island on August 1st by train. They enjoyed the trip. They hadn't been married very long and were still on their honeymoon. Arriving in Seattle on August 2nd, they checked into the New Richmond Hotel. Carl recalled if that was the New Richmond, he had hated to see the old one. It sat right beside the railroad station in Seattle, but it was handy. On the 3rd of August, Carl went to Pier 39 to the headquarters of the port of embarkation had breakfast at the port cafeteria where he joined a group at a big table. During the ensuring conversation, Carl asked where the headquarters building was, and an Army Transportation Corps Lieutenant Colonel said he was going there so Carl could join them. Carl joined, sorry, Carl mentioned what he was doing in Seattle and that it was necessary for him to check in at the command section and let them know who he was and what he was doing. The Lieutenant Colonel said he was going to staff meeting there and asked Carl to come along, which he did. There, Carl was introduced to Brigadier General Clinton Jacobs, Port Commander, who introduced Carl to other staff members and asked that all assistance be provided him on his mission. The General also suggested that somebody find Captain Palmer a place to work, and the Lieutenant Colonel who had befriended Carl offered him a space in his department. As luck would have it, this Lieutenant Colonel turned out to be the director of space allocation for all military shipments out of the Seattle Port of Embarkation. Carl got a desk, a big table, and a file cabinet just outside the Lieutenant Colonel's office. And among the top staff shipment control people, Carl could not have been surrounded by finer company. The director helped Carl learn his way around where his bodies were buried and how to get around major and minor obstacles. With that kind of help, Carl arranged for a holding space for the 40 troops in Manuk material that was coming into the port, some at Pier 39, some at Auburn Depot, such as the vehicles and ground support equipment, and some space at the Boeing plant, where they could arrange air pickup of priority items by the 46 C-54s. Some items even came into nearby McCord Army Airfield. All in all, it was a cooperative effort which produced outstanding results. Carl's 15-day TBY was extended by 30 days and then 60 more days on top of that. There were trips to Ladfield, briefings, new orders, and finally things really got moving. Carl received some good help in the way of Staff Sergeant Henry A. Jones, who was with Carl for some time. After a while, other personnel were assigned to help out, including a lad named Andrews, another named Hannigan, 
and a young lieutenant named Louis, Louis Goglia. All in all, they made a good team and they received lots of help from the poor people. One can imagine there were peak times when the train loads of equipment would come pouring in and panic suddenly. Once the situation was again put in order, there was often followed a week or two of nothing but paperwork and chasing down incoming shipments that were misrouted. Unable to afford the amenities of the New Richmond Hotel, Carl and Jane located a sleeping room in the big old house on Capitol Hill. The room was just that, a sleeping room with shared kitchen privileges, one shelf with a communal refrigerator, and a bathroom shared with two of the families that lived in the apartment. It is in situations like that where wives earn their keep, and Jean certainly did. In addition to household duties, Jean should have been on the 46th and Ladfield's payroll. She ran a shopping and shipping service for many of the wives in Alaska. Carl and Jean received phone calls day and night from new wives and children arriving at the port to help them find rooms and transportation. This was the most gratifying part of the whole duty. The Palmers appreciated the Seattle weather, knowing that it beat the hell out of that in Alaska at that time. The strike created a lot of problems for a lot of people in a lot of ways. For example, foodstuff in the Seattle Commissary were in very short supply and marginal in quality and varieties, particularly in meat and produce. But it was as bad or worse in Fairbanks. Colonel Merritt contacted Carl and asked if he had any ideas on how to help in the critical problem areas. Carl then talked with Major White, the 46th commander, about some space on the 46th and C-54s, and Major White said to work it out and keep them posted. Carl devised a plan, which he shared with Colonel Merrick, Major Hansen, and the PX officer about shipping meat and fresh frozen produce in short order. Carl talked with the port veterinarian and received a list of approved packing houses and his recommendations for the best outfit to approach and deal with. The veterinarian advised Carl that one of the best companies that he had enjoyed doing businesses with was a family operator. One of the sons was back from service, having been a captain in charge of meat product procurement. Upon meeting him, Carl explained to him and his people what the problems were. After a tour of the plant, they arrived at a rather reasonable concept. They would start with hamburger and hamburger alone, regular grind, 82.5% lean, government inspected it in five pound packages. It'd be fast hard frozen, which was a new concept and one which he had worked with when he was in the military and then have it packed in 50 pound cardboard boxes. He was already shipping some meat products in that fashion. Orders would be in 1,000-pound lots delivered to Boeing Field military operations. The price per pound and no red food stamps were required. The price was per pound and no red food stamps were required. The price ended up being much better than they could get in Seattle stores, which required the red food stamps at that time. Carl advised all concerned and received their concurrence that the burger lift was a good idea and it was launched. The first order was for about 2,000 pounds of hamburger. The PX sent a check for $2,000 and Carl was to act as their agent. This operation continued until shipping got back to normal. Hamburger remained the only beef. It was not long before additional products were added including bacon, sausage, cheese, and at one time some fish with several times apples, oranges, onions, and potatoes. Carl worked out two similar deals before Christmas of 1946. 
one with the PX officer and one with the families of the 46. They sent money, personal checks, and personal letters, and Captain Page or Captain Murdoch, in adjutant capacity, acted as coordinator. June again earned her keep by receiving checks for $30, $40, or $50 for particular items. The Palmers would get what they could and get it shipped to Alaska. As could be imagined, the bookwork was a problem, but not an insurmountable one. The PX deal was a little cleaner. In fact, they said get anything and any amount that you can, and if you need credit or money, here's a certain amount. Carl did have a slush fund left over from the meat deals, and as a joke, walked to a hardware store a couple of blocks from the Jefferson Hotel in downtown Seattle with the intention of creating a stir. The store had two workers, an old man who stood behind the counter and a young clerk who came up to help Carl. Carl looked around and said, how's business? The young man admitted they were not doing very well, competing with Sears and Montgomery Ward, and people like that were kind of beating him to the punch. Carl said, you have a lot of tricycles, scooters, sleds, and skates, and you're not doing too good? Nope, they said. Well, I'll tell you what, Carl said. Give me a price and I'll buy every damn thing you've got here. The sales staff got to joking, thinking Carl was kidding. Then they realized that he wasn't. They all sat down and worked it out, with Carl buying every toy item they had. When everything was bundled up, it was taken out to Boeing and put on the 46 C-54 and sent to Alaska. The 46 people got their money back as well, which is a different way of doing business, in addition to the toys for Christmas. Carl knows they were happy, because he and June, and those who helped out got all kinds of letters of appreciation from everybody who was in on what became known as Operation Santa's Sled. Chapter 6. Maintenance Support Washington Post, July 6, 1946, San Francisco AP. Polar defense will be the number one problem in this war we hope will never come, said General H.H. H. Arnold, retired wartime commander of the Army Air Forces, told the Commonwealth Club today. War-making nations are all north of 30 degrees north latitude, Arnold said. Study your globe and you will see the most direct routes are not across the Atlantic or Pacific, but through the Arctic. The United States is the most vulnerable of the nations, with new weapons employed along this route. On 14 July 1946, the 46th Photo Recon Maintenance Activities commenced at Ladfield, Alaska. The mission of the Aircraft Maintenance Section was to perform first, second, and third echelon maintenance on available aircraft to obtain maximum availability for assigned missions. This was attempted by a limited number of of available personnel. The capability of those personnel was largely an unknown factor since all were newly assigned and had been selected from many different bases and organizations. However, there was a nucleus of highly qualified senior NCOs with B-29 experience. Additionally, only approximately 40% of the TONE Table 1 and 2 had arrived. These shortages consisted of everything from common tools, wrenches, pliers, etc. to highly technical test equipment. Also, the resources of the base were extremely limited, particularly in the area of general purpose vehicles, refueling units, and ground transport support equipment. This problem would not be solved for several months when all the organizational equipment arrived. The arrival of this equipment was further delayed by the sinking of the freighter USS General Zelensky, en route from Seattle carrying most of the larger items. 
A hangar capable of housing two B-29 aircraft was allotted to the 46th, and action was immediately begun to prepare working areas for maintenance and supply functions. This was all conducted with a sense of extreme urgency since the Arctic winter could be expected to arrive within 45 to 60 days. The most critical operation was the preparation and winterization of all specialized equipment, i.e. cell tracks, tugs, fuel servicing units, external power units, ground heaters, as well as the general purpose vehicles used for transportation of personnel and equipment. This action was determined to be more critical and urgent because it was very limited inside heated storage. Several temporary movable maintenance shelters were later received. However, they had to be modified and provided very little protection, and later were determined practically useless in temperatures of even negative 10 degrees to negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. And that is the end of Chapter 6 of World in Peril by Ken White. Thank you for listening to the second installment of Season 2. You know, if you're enjoying this, you might want to check out Season 1, That of an Eve Story by Chan Thomas. Um, You can follow me on Twitter as well um, if you want to get updates about when this will be coming out or anything like that. And, um, yeah, thanks a lot for listening. If you got anything to, to, to offer, just let me know, and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much, everybody.